Uh, with that said, let's go ahead and jump into our teaching. Now, we're doing sort of, um, you know, we've been in this series called Standing Firm, and we took a bit of a break from it here just because of the, the Christmas season, but we've been looking at particular verses that, that really do sort of accompany the idea of what we're talking about. And all of these teachings today, or last week, this week, the week that follows, they really are designed to get us to see that God has given us an incredible promise to be with us no matter what is going on in life. And the incarnation, as we'll talk about here in a few moments, is one of the greatest evidences of that. And so here we are now, less than two weeks away from Christmas. And traditionally, this is sort of the time of the year where churches, especially this one, begin to emphasize the importance of, of Christmas. And in light of this, I want to begin this morning by, by pointing out a, a Christmas message it's kind of an interesting thing for a, a pastor because each year you're faced with the challenge of taking very old and solidified truths and trying to package them in new and meaningful ways. And so like I could run around here with a Santa Claus suit on and throw out iPads and try to bring some invigoration to this, or we can do what I prefer to do, and that is to really take the time to look at the fact that we're going to talk about very ancient truths today that are timeless and unchanging. And it is in the very way that God works through those truths that they become new to us. And so newness isn't an entirely bad thing. But if it's the only thing we look for, especially in a season like this, we, we begin to miss the point of what Christmas is entirely about. And for the Christian, it's, it's a time certainly not restricted to, let me put it this way, not only to learn new stuff, although I'm sure a lot of that will happen today. I want to encourage you to see this as a time where you have an opportunity to grow deeper roots into the stuff that we already say we believe. The very nature of Jesus' coming to the earth is one of the foundational elements of our faith. This and Easter and a host of things that happen in between these two events. But nonetheless, this is so central to the Christian life that it does us well to really focus on this, to understand the significance of, of why we celebrate it to this degree. And so many of us in this room have probably heard some, or uh, if, if not all, of the elements of the Christmas story. Maybe you haven't. There's probably a pretty diverse background in here. Yet we make a real mistake if we just gloss over the simplicity of the Christmas story. It is very simple in many ways. But the truth of the matter is that the Christmas story also gives us an insight into the person and the nature of, of who Jesus is. So we have this wonderful opportunity this week to think a little bit about the Incarnation and then next week to talk about the way God brought it about through the telling of the Christmas story. And that's what I hope that we'll take away this morning. And this leads me to the main truth. There's only one idea I want to talk about this morning. We'll examine it in a few directions, but there's only one idea that I want to mention this morning, and it is directly connected to Jesus' birth. Jesus' birth was a true miracle because through it, God's word became flesh. Because through it, God's word became flesh. John 1, 1 through 5, I'll reread that to you. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. One of the most famous texts that address, Christi uh, address the Christmas season, and some very important truths that we'll talk about in it this morning. And in the Christian faith, this is known as the incarnation. It's a big fancy word that simply means God became flesh. God took on skin and bone like us. And the big truth God is trying to get to our hearts with a teaching like this is to understand that in John 1, 1 through 5, and in the larger Christmas story, there is something very significant about this event. It matters in deep and meaningful ways. The incarnation sort of simply defined as the historical event of Jesus becoming a human being. 
taking on not only the appearance of, of mankind, but taking on everything else that we deal with as mankind. He lived like us, he worked like us, he drank like us, he ate like us, and eventually he died like us. And so part of the incarnation, the beauty of it, is that God becomes like us, uh, his creation. And during his time on earth, he is completely like us. It's very important to say that, except in two very significant ways. It's also very important to say this too. Even though Jesus was fully human, he was, he was fully God, okay? That's a place where we are not, you know, absolutely in line uh, with Jesus. And the men and women that have claimed to be fully God over the years are rendered as uh, heretics. That usually ends up in a really bad place. So that's a distinction between us and Jesus. And unlike us, here's a key thing. He is without sin. So if you want to know why Easter can happen, it's because of the nature of Jesus. He is sinless. And even though the Bible is pretty clear about what Jesus' incarnation is, there are many people today who, who misunderstand it. They, they have some, some ideas about it. Sometimes they're benevolent. Sometimes they are uh, well-intentioned, but they are not exactly what we mean by the incarnation, at least what the Bible teaches us. And so if we misunderstand why God being uh, made flesh in Jesus and Jesus being fully human and fully man is so important to us, fully God, if we miss that, what happens is we, we miss out on the, the tethered truths of grace connected to it. And I want to give you two common examples of how people often understand the, the incarnation, or maybe we might even say misunderstand it. The first one, this is a true story. I was a, a youth pastor for about 10 years, and I'll never forget a, a conversation I had with one of my youth workers and a table full of our kids over a, a lunch at a youth camp. And so typically in youth camp, there's all kinds of teachings and trainings, and then during the night, there's large group worship and some big thematic teaching throughout the week. And one of the nights, what the, teacher, what the speaker was talking about was the relationship that God had with Jesus. He was literally talking about the Father and the Son and how they interacted with each other and why it's so important that we understand the dynamics of this relationship. Keep in mind the Holy Spirit is a prevalent part of this too. We're just not going to address that, that right now. And so we always created space similar to what we do here at Restoration. After teachings, we want people to know that there's a follow-up place. There's a place you can go if you heard something you don't understand or you flat out disagree with something that was said today. Those decompression spaces are critical. And so we were having one of these decompression spaces after a teaching. And in the middle of one of our conversations, one of my workers began addressing a student's question about why there was a need for Jesus in the world. And the answer was like pretty seamlessly perfect up until the last thing, when with the best of intentions, he uttered this. He said, after speaking about why Jesus was so great and so awesome and how he saved the world from sin, he said, and, and, and that's why God created Jesus, okay? Now, that might seem like a subtle little statement that God created Jesus, but it's a real problem if we believe God created Jesus because then Jesus is too much like us in some ways that are actually unhealthy. It seems like a little nuance. God, you know, Jesus always was or Jesus was created. And there are some faiths today that believe Jesus was a created being. But to believe that is a problem, a real problem. And it's a common misunderstanding about Jesus' birth. Because the Bible doesn't say anywhere that God created Jesus like you and me. And if he did, we'd be in trouble. The, the veracity, the truthfulness of what we celebrate this week and next week, the, the proclamation that we celebrate together at Easter, that Jesus has offered redemption to those who would receive it, all of these things begin to fall apart if Jesus is exactly like us in this area. He is eternal like God because he is fully God. He is equal to God because he is fully God. He is perfectly God because he is absolutely God. 
And that really matters for reasons we will discuss in a moment. There's a sort of a stacking case I want to build this morning. So Jesus did not just come around. He was not an afterthought in the economy of God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit always were. The three are one and the one are three. Jesus was not created. I want to give you another example, a little more humorous, from a, a good friend, at least of mine. He's a person that many of you will have known, especially if you have Netflix, you can watch this now, or maybe you were like me and this show was sort of a defining show of your 20s. There was a, a really interesting episode many years ago in one of my favorite sitcoms called The Office. And have you ever heard of The Office? Like, Four of you raise your hands, but all of you know what The Office is. Give me a break. It's like the most popular show almost ever in the history of the world. It's, there's like streaming rights now. People are fighting over who can show it. Netflix is about to lose it because NBC wants to take it back. And ironically, this show has been off the air for like the better part of 10 years, but it still has this following of people that, it, that is astounding. It's one of those shows that, whether you like it or not, has sort of shaped and reshaped culture. And the, the premise of the show is this really awkward, goofy, put his foot in his mouth regularly, a boss who was like one of the nicest but really poorest managers the, the workplaces had ever seen. And in one of the typical sort of rants where he is grossly mismanaging the office, they're trying to hire somebody, okay? And this guy, Michael Scott, decides that he wants to hire his, his nephew. And his nephew is not really what you'd call a qualified uh, worker. And so the office breaks out into this big argument about this guy. This is what's called nepotism, essentially hiring a family member just because you want to hire a family member, even though in this case the person is utterly unqualified for the job. And so everyone in the office is trying to make this appeal to him that his nephew is not going to be a good hire and that the office is going to have problems if they bring him in. But Michael being Michael, putting his foot in his mouth, he builds this strong case for why he needs to hire his nephew. And the closing summation of his argument, like the, you know, he says this and then the gavel drops, is he says, listen, when God needed help, he chose to hire his own family. He hired his son, Jesus. Right? He brought Jesus on the job and fixed it. And it was truly funny. Like, I was rolling out of my chair. But it's absolutely not correct. But, but, but it's also the kind of thing that you could see, you somewhat naively could see as, as accurate. Like, Jesus is like the hired hand who's brought in to, to solve these, these problems. And the challenge with that is, while it's good for a sitcom and it's funny, it's actually very, very inaccurate. And it, it continues to sort of denigrate the significance of who Jesus actually is. And connected to that is the ability to keep the promises he said he would, he would keep for us. So Jesus is not just an additional hired hand. He's not just a, another prophet. He's not the closer you bring in to solve the problem. He is the, the arbiter, the foundation of God's plan of redemption. And Colossians actually says he's the, he's the firstborn in it, equal to God in every way. Now, these are subtle, one of them funny, one of them common. There's a ton, ton of others. We don't have time to go through them. But a lot of the misunderstandings about Jesus' incarnation, they are often just that. They're subtle uh, misunderstanding. Sometimes they can be outright deceptions, but there's, there's no denying that these things can seem somewhat innocent at times, even if they're genuine misunderstandings, but they do determine how deeply you understand who Jesus is and what he is actually doing in the world. And so these confusions and others that I don't have time to mention this morning, they, they raise a serious question, and it's the next thing that I want to talk to you about. Why does knowing what Jesus' incarnation truly is really matter for our lives and, and in our faith. Why is it so important that we get this, this right? Well, there's a few reasons. If Jesus isn't who he said he was, and that's what both of these statements allude to and the ones that we're not mentioning, if he's something less than what he said he is, the Son of God, 
God, fully God and fully man, then the bottom line here is that we are, we are worshiping somebody who is not honest, somebody who, is, who, who does not know what truth is. We ultimately believe that Jesus is the ultimate arbiter of all truth. And so if we miss these foundational truths, what happens is there's a domino effect in the Christian faith, and we begin to sort of believe in things that are absolutely not true. In the worst case scenarios, some people have called Jesus like an absolute lunatic. And they said, you know, this is a guy who had a megalomaniac complex. It's hard to justify that when you look at his life and the humility and the servitude and the fact that he pretty much could have owned the world. We read that in the Gospels, but he chose to, to own nothing so that we could inherit the greatest thing ever. And that's the kingdom of God. You have, you have this Jesus who is unable to do what he, is able, what he says he's going to do. And so he cannot be the light in the life of the world if, if we don't have these strong attributes in him, him being fully God and fully man. We are dependent on him in these areas, in two critical areas, and I'll mention them to you now. Here is why it is important to know that Jesus is fully God. This means that Jesus alone was able to perfectly fulfill God's demands for the law, for holiness and righteousness. If you've ever experienced grace, which simply means that Jesus does for you what you cannot do for yourself, it is because of this truth right here. This might sound like a high tower, like, you know, white tower theological statement, and it is in many regards. But the truth is, Jesus being fully God is why we can, we can have the, we can live our lives in a way without the pressure of trying to think that we have to be God or to earn his favor. No person can merit God's favor or love. And thanks to Jesus, we don't have to because he is enough. His grace is enough. He is made uh, human so that he can display the fullness of God on earth. He is God and can fully relate to God. And because of that, he can restore us back to God. He's the only person that can satisfy what God demands for the forgiveness of sin. So he is absolutely and fully God. But he is also fully man. And this is probably the statement that will more resonate with us because even though we're becoming more like God in our sanctification, the truth is that we're deeply, deeply human. And I think the humanity of Jesus is something interesting. It gives us these absolutely sort of strong anchor points that we can hold on to. Being fully man means that he was tempted in every way like us. He suffered like us. He actually got on our life level and experienced the goods of life, the hardships of life, everything we endure in this life, even to the point of death, he, he went through. He suffered and endured every single one of those things. And the real beauty of this is that he is not obligated in any way to do any of this for us. He has his own mind and his own will, but it is ultimately in accord to the will of his Father. And so it's because of his, his deep and profound love for his Father and us that Jesus chooses to do these things for us. He actually, of his own accord, experiences what we experience. And if you've ever been through hardship or trial or struggle, these are not the things that we normally want to experience for other people. They're the kinds of things, like we talked about last week, we, we're sort of begging God to remove them from our lives. But here you have Jesus who actually says, so that I can be present with you in these struggles and trials, I'm going to endure everything you endure. You're never going to go through a situation that you cannot look to me and say, I can learn from you and, and rest in you and find comfort in you because ultimately he has gone through something similar or exactly like it before us. And I always say this when I talk about this. This is another place where the use of our words really matters. God doesn't just know what we're going through. 
He doesn't know about what we're going through. He doesn't have like a, a fragment of the image of what we're going through. He actually knows what you and I go through because he has first gone through it for us. So Jesus doesn't just relate to us. Jesus actually has embodied everything we deal with. And as I said last week, his spirit is in us. So he's not just walking through us, or walking, excuse me, with us through these trials. He is actually present in us. And that's a profound truth. Him being fully God and fully man deeply matters. And I want to give you another example of why this matters, of why, why God becoming uh, man truth is from, from a different angle. I want to talk about this. I, uh, I once had a conversation with an atheist. I really enjoy uh, talking to atheists. I've shared this before um, in large part because a lot of atheists are actually not atheists. Most of them are what we say agnostic, meaning they, they actually do believe in something. They just, I'm not sure if it's attainable. It's very rare that you meet a true, uh, true atheist. And so typically when I come across one of them, I really respect them because they're a hard breed to find. And they are usually pretty clear in their thoughts about what they, what they believe and why they do not believe that the faith we proclaim is true. And so this guy had asked me a very, a very common question, actually. He wanted to know, because he could not understand, why if God was all-powerful, why he needed Jesus to die for the sins of the world? Like, why do you need an incarnation? Why do you need Easter? Why do you need all this stuff? If God can do whatever he wants, why does he have to do things this way? And he literally said to me, why couldn't God just take his magic wand and make the wrongs go away? You hear this a lot. Um, it's a very common critique in not only our culture, but especially amongst those who have hardened aversions to faith. And this is a critique that actually needs to be addressed. Why didn't God wave his magic wand and just make all the trouble go away? Why does Jesus have to come to earth and, and set up Christmas in the way that we experience it? Well, first, it's important to note that God does not have a magic wand. Um, that works really well in like the Harry Potter stories, but he does not sit up there like with, uh, with a starred wand waving his hand, um, doing things. There's no world of wizarding Jesus style at Universal Studios. This, I, this notion is, it might seem interesting that we want to kind of connect this to like magic and hocus pocus, but when you actually begin to understand the significance of what it means to, to be broken in sin, this is actually a really trite way to describe what Jesus does. It's not just a magic wand reality. There is something so cosmically broken that it requires the sacrificial intervention of God to, to correct it. And this is the second thing I want to really dial in on is the reality of the matter is that God knew, if you think about this, the greatest wrongs that take place in the world, the most trivial to, to the greatest, okay? Those who have been hurt, those who have been taken advantage of, those who have been oppressed, those who have suffered great evil at the hands of others and experienced deep levels of transgression. People in our world who have endured things that no human should have to go through, but they do because we still live in a world that is incredibly saturated with brokenness. In all of these things, what if I said to you, your, your lifetime hurt, God just waves his wand and he makes it all better. That might sound good, but it actually is not practical. It can't happen that way. And all of these things, God knows the pain and the anguish of sin. It runs so deep in the human condition that something had to be done to make it truly right, to truly heal and bring justice to the earth. And this is why God just doesn't look at the world and give it a mulligan for the wrongs that have been committed against him and certainly the wrongs that people have committed against each other. And what's ironic about this is that this this idea that I'm communicating to you when we talk about the necessity for God's justice to be displayed in the world, we demand this in every area of life, at least in our culture, right? This reality is reflected in our earthly justice systems. 
Wrongdoing, according to our laws, requires some appropriate penance, if you will. And that is why Jesus comes. That is why he dies for us. There is a significant need to remedy a problem that cannot just have a finger snap to go with. Jesus cannot relate to us in every way if he does not endure this challenge for us. He takes the sinless, takes our sin upon himself so that we can actually be free. And he pays the price to set us free, and that freedom is meant to empower a new Christ-like way of living, where we share that freedom with the world. This isn't in my notes, but uh, I want to share another illustration with you to see how significant this is. And I'll just use, uh, this is a story that if we've not personally been through it, we we likely know somebody who has been connected to this because it's a a common problem in our world today. But um, on a semi-regular basis, we read news stories about folks who are, you know, driving drunk, and they wind up hitting a, a car full of people, and, and it's, it's sad, but tons of innocent people often die from this, or sometimes a child will die in this. Uh, almost every year, especially around the holidays, we see an uptick in this stuff, and so I want you to think about what, what I'm about to say here, and, and please hear me saying, like, we need laws and police officers and state troopers and folks to, to go out here and enforce and address this stuff. Those people who do these things, need to, that needs to be dealt with. There has to be a justice there and, and the desire to keep it from happening again, right? But ultimately, our laws, as important as they are, if you talk to a parent who's lost a child in a situation like that, there is no law that can fully mend that heart. You can seek justice and we should desire it. We should long for it. But there will always be a level of hurt and brokenness in the human heart that earthly justice cannot remedy. There might be some form of satisfaction to see justice in a situation, but the cosmic break of losing a child or a loved one or apply any scenario where a wrong is done to somebody and, and an innocent life is lost, that grief, that wound is a scar we will carry for the rest of our lives. And that is why I say, you know, we often, we often throw people under the bus, fundamentalists particularly, and we say things like, you know, uh, if you've been in a church where they've just hammered you with sin, that's actually not a good thing. We want there to be a balance with sin and grace. But I'm beginning to believe that the problem with the modern church today, some of it anyways, is that we don't take seriously enough what sin actually has done to the world. And the fact that God can see those hurts and he can mend them, not perfectly in this life, But as we move towards him, as there's a closer level of sanctification with him, and eventually when we are with him in glory, those wrongs that could not be fully righted on earth will be made right, in large part because of what Jesus has done and what he will finish when he comes again. And so we actually really need to understand the challenge of sin to really appreciate the significance of why Jesus comes to the earth for it. He can bring an ultimate justice. He actually will also bring justice to the things of this world that are unjust and go unpunished. The day will come when all wrongs are made right and everyone will stand before him and in in this sort of wonderful level of accountability that he applies to the world. And so although Jesus never sinned or wronged another human, because of his great love for us, he suffers the weight of our wrongs. He endures them even though he did not commit them. And to prove his love for us, to satisfy God's ultimate demand for justice in the world, because he is perfectly God and fully human, he does, what God, he does before God what only God can do for himself. His sacrifice remedies what God needs. He needs a level of righteousness we cannot provide. And because he's fully human, God is also aware that we cannot be righteous enough to earn his love. And so it's like this double blessing we get. Jesus addresses our sins, and then he stands in on our behalf for the rest of our days. He is our righteousness in the days we cannot be righteous and he is the person that helps us to become more righteous in areas where we might not even think we have the capacity to do so. 
And whenever we speak of Jesus' coming to earth, I read you the same verse. It's from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. And I read this to you not because there are not a lot of other verses to read about this, but because, at least in my heart, this is the most pointed scripture that talks about what Christmas means in the book of Hebrews. Here's, here's what we read. The author of Hebrews says this. Since we have been made with flesh and blood, speaking about humanity, it was for this reason, speaking of Jesus, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. What this means is that Jesus became flesh so that he could identify with every element of your life, mountaintop and valley. And he does this as a faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. He fulfills the role of the Old Testament high priest. He is the one that mediates between God and man. He not only has empathy with us in our struggles and in our sin, but then he takes the next step and he mediates it. He goes to the cross to deal with it. And then the author of Hebrews goes on to say, and this to me is the most profound statement in this text, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And that passage goes on to speak similar truths. And the idea here is that Jesus was tempted and did not fail in it. And so he knows everything you deal with, he knows. And if you think about having that kind of an advocate in your life, that's a pretty amazing way to think about Christmas, right? It's a pretty profound way to think about what Jesus is doing in our lives. Now listen, you can search all the religions of the world, but you will never find a God in any of them that willingly subjects himself to suffering and to hardship like this. He goes through everything for us. Like a brother or sister, he is born like us, lives like us, looks like us, works like us, laughs like us, suffers like us, and he eventually dies for us. The word becoming flesh changes everything. And it's actually meant to change the steps of our life, to redirect the steps of our lives. So please listen to me. Here's how we end. If your Christianity is built on something less than that, you cannot make it to the end. If you're doing it for friends, for family, for appearance, for something else, the nostalgia of the songs we sing, it cannot last. In fact, what most people will find is if, they, if they're bought into Christianity in a way that is less significant than what we're talking about today, at some point, Jesus says this happens to every one of us, we must count the cost of the faith we proclaim to have. And if we are disconnected from the, the profound ways Jesus connects us to God, what we'll find is subtly over time, the, the cost just becomes too much. And this is why we probably all know men and women whom one day walked mightily with Jesus, and this day we just don't know where they are with him. And so listen to me. If your Christianity is built on something less than that, don't leave this place with it being built on something less than that. So I ask in closing, this is a cliche, but it's a cliche that actually has a pretty significant truth behind it. I want to evoke this idea that is, that is often sort of thrown under the bus. The true reason we celebrate Christmas is this, this whole season is the person of Jesus. And when you understand the reasoning we've discussed this morning, when you understand that one of the reasons we can trust in the promises of Paul and Ephesians, the armor of God, is because he has promised to see us through to the end. He will cause us to stand firm until the end. It's because of truths like the ones we are talking about today and we'll celebrate next week. In his grace, Jesus has made a way for us. And so as we draw ever closer to Christmas this week, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you when it comes to his incarnation? And what is it that you will do about it? If you will close your eyes and pray with me.